I would encourage you to take your Bible or the one in the pew rack in front of you and uh, turn it up to that passage of Scripture that Ben read a few moments ago from uh, Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians gathered in and around the city of Corinth. I know a speaker is never supposed to apologize before he or she speaks, but this morning I'm fighting a bit of a cold, and so uh, my voice is a bit raspy, and I hope it's not a distraction to you this morning or the work of the Spirit. I appreciate your patience uh, with that this morning. This morning, uh, we're beginning a new series of messages uh, based upon Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And I've been praying about this for a long time. I've preached individual sermons from this particular epistle, but never an entire series based on the book expositionally. And uh, I think it's time for us to begin to plow into 1 Corinthians, because it seems to me that it's uh, difficult to imagine a time in human history uh, that is uh, more like the world in Corinth in the days of Paul than is our own particular time in human history. I say that because when you look at our culture today and the theological and philosophical and cultural and moral influences that are bandied about everywhere and especially come in direct opposition to uh, Christianity, uh, that uh, we're going to find as we study Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we're going to find that his letter has an eerie relevance and a contemporary flavor to it. And I think we'll see both our culture and I think we'll see the Church of Jesus Christ as we study this particular epistle together. If we were to somehow take a time machine and to go back to the first century in Corinth and were able to spend a few days or weeks uh, acclimating ourselves to the time and the place and the culture of Corinth, I think we would soon begin to realize uh, that the Corinthian world uh, was uncannily very much like our own today in 21st century America. In many ways, the culture of Corinth was, was and is similar to our culture today. Materialism uh, was everywhere. The worship of sports and entertainment, and particularly the theater, was a hallmark of Corinthian society. The overt sensuality of Corinthian life was, I think, something that's very much like what's happening in our day and age. Uh, and the jumble of religions and philosophies, many of which have, have gotten a new, new uh, uh, life to them and have become popular again in our day, the jumble of religions and philosophies that compete for the attention of people was very much real in Corinthian society as I believe it's very much real in our postmodern world today in the 21st century. What is more, I think that what was happening in the church in the first century, particularly in Corinth, is very similar to that which is happening within the church of Jesus Christ today. 
I think if we were to go back to first century Corinth, we would have a powerful sense of deja vu, that we recognize this, we see this, we're familiar with this, we've seen it in our own churches, and we've witnessed it and seen it uh, in the American church, both things that are good and things that are bad. Now, to understand Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians, you need to understand a wee bit about the city of Corinth itself. Uh, First, you should know that Corinth was a very large city in the Roman Empire. It was the largest city in southern Greece. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It had a population of about 250,000 people. It is estimated that when Paul visited there, there were about a quarter of a million people living in that city. Geographically, uh, Corinth was uh, situated at a crossroads, a strategic crossroads. It it was in a strategic location. Uh, It was as if all roads led to Corinth. Now, I doubt that you can make it out very clearly. This map doesn't do justice to where you may be sitting But uh, right here is the city of Corinth. Uh, This is uh, the um, map as it would have been in Paul's day. The city of Corinth. And this part is the southern part of Greece here. And this part, you can see the city of Athens, is the northern part of Greece. And the northern part of Greece and the southern part of Greece are connected by this tiny sliver of land, about four miles uh, in breadth and situated strategically right on that sliver, that isthmus of land, was the city of Corinth. Now, what was interesting about that is that if you wanted to travel from the northern part of Greece to the southern part of Greece, you had to go through Corinth. And if you wanted to go from the southern part of Greece to the northern part of Greece to Athens, you had to pass through Corinth. So it made it a strategic crossroads. Furthermore, it was strategic in its location because of uh, sailing habits that went on in those days. Typically, sailors would set out from Athens, a great uh, naval port, would set out from Athens and would have to come down around the horn here, around the southern part of Greece to get up here to Italy and to the other parts of, of Macedonia and the rest. And the seas were treacherous around the southern part of Greece. Many sailors were lost. Ships were lost in those treacherous seas. And so what some smart sailors determined to do was, rather than take a risk and lose their their crew and their ship and their cargo sailing around the horn of southern Greece here, what they did was they would come to the city of Corinth, Remember, it's about four miles wide. And they would actually have slaves pull the cargo ships out of either the eastern side, if they were here, or the western side, if they were here, and pull those ships out and put them on skids and push those ships four miles on skids to the other body of water. Can't imagine it, a heroic feat, but that was very common in the first century to do. And captains of ships found that that it made sense. It was economically sensible because uh, they didn't have to go through those treacherous seas and lose their crew and their cargo and their ship and all the rest. And so it was very common uh, for them to do that. And it made Corinth a 
strategic place. In fact, if you go to the city of Corinth uh, today, and I've been in Corinth, right now in that four-mile stretch, they have dug a huge canal, almost like the Panama Canal, and actually ships can pass through from one body of water to the other through that canal. No longer do you have to hire slaves to push the ships across, but they can now go through the canal. I I give you that whole history and nautical history to help you to understand that Corinth was a strategic place so that merchants would come there and lots of business was done there in Corinth. Uh, It it was a a tourist spot as well. Uh, Corinth was, I suppose, uh, to liken it to something in our day, Corinth was something like Las Vegas or Atlantic City or... uh, um, well, Las Vegas and Atlantic City probably are the, the, the best likenesses to what Corinth was. It was a popular tourist destination for people who were traveling north to south and south to north and east to west and west to east. Everybody went to Corinth. All roads led to Corinth. Merchants would go there. People would hang out there. And, and it was a very popular place to visit and spend time. People would go there for relaxation, to let their hair down, to have a good time. They'd go there to forget about their problems. Corinth was a very cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic, multicultural kind of place and had a great deal of socioeconomic diversity. In addition to all of that, Corinth was a mecca of sexuality. Corinth was sex saturated in its society. One of the reasons for that is that the leading religion in the city of Corinth actually promoted prostitution. Corinth had a temple that was the center of worship for the goddess Aphrodite. And actually, the temple of of Aphrodite, they would have sacred priestesses and priests who were actually prostitutes, who in the evening would be sent out into the streets of Corinth to sell their bodies to business travelers, to sailors, to tourists, to athletes, to residents, to just anybody who wanted a a so-called religious experience in Corinth. In fact, the Greeks coined a term from the name of the city of Corinth, the, it was a verb. In the English, it, it, the, the verb is Corinthianize. To Corinthianize something is to make it sexually charged, to make it sexually immoral, to make it sexually unrestrained. So the society was sex-saturated. It was all this thought and culture and theater and arts and and entertainment and and food and and languages and people coming from everywhere and bringing their culture with them it was this kind of city that that paul went to start a church he had a church planting assignment to go there and and to begin to gather together a band of of Christ followers, and and God honored Paul's ministry in Corinth. In fact, Paul spent about a year and a half in in and around Corinth, uh, the longest he spent any time in any of the churches that he planted. 
And God prospered the work in Corinth. And congregations were, were established. And ch- the church of Jesus Christ thrived. Now you need to understand, uh, there was a church with many congregations. It was the church of Jesus Christ. These were Christ followers. There wasn't a Baptist church and a Presbyterian church and a Methodist church. No, that, that comes way, way later in church history. It was... Christ followers, the Christian way. And there was lots of congregations gathered together in the Corinthian church. But six years have passed and Paul's no longer in Corinth and he gets word from uh, others about what's happening in Corinth and he becomes very disturbed and discouraged because what he understands from those reports is that the, the people whose lives were transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ that, that, that they were kind of backsliding. They were stepping away from the truth that, that Paul had originally delivered to them. These people who once were far from God, people who used to run around with prostitutes in the middle of the night, uh, these people who had found amazing grace, the commodity of God's grace, were now stepping back in their commitment to Christ. And as Paul begins his letter to them, and you need to understand that it would have been uh, the practice in those days for this letter to be read in the assembly. So that rather than having a, a prepared sermon like we would in the 21st century church, this letter would have been read to the people gathered together in, in these congregations. And Paul's letter would have been read to them. He writes his letter about 56 or 57 A.D., And he writes to them about the challenges that are facing the church. And again, I would say because of the similarities between Corinth and 21st century America, that I think there's a lot of similarities between what was going on in the Corinthian church and what's going on in the church today. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher of Westminster Chapel in London, boils it down to this and he said there were three problems going on in the Corinthian church that was causing this spiritual decline. The first was that that there was a carnality that was going on in the Corinthian church. Something called antinomianism had crept in. By the way, using that big theological word makes me wonder how many of you looked up the word superlapsarianism this week. (laughs) And you've got it all settled right. You understand it completely and you're going to sit down with coffee and explain it to me, right? Okay. Well, antinomianism uh, was a problem that had crept into the Corinthian church. Antinomianism is the notion that, that Christian people, Christ followers, can live above the rules, that there are no rules. You have the license to do whatever you want to do. And because the Corinthian church had been influenced by the culture around it, by a spirit of worldliness, and the toleration of sexually saturated living, it began to be reflected in the ethics of the Christians in the church at Corinth. And so what was happening was that the Christians in Corinth were actually being more influenced by the culture around them rather than as God had designed the church influencing the culture. So the culture was influencing the church rather than the church influencing the culture. 
Another problem that Jones says was, was characteristic of the spiritual decline in Corinth was that there was an intellectualism that was characterized among the members of the church there. They were puffed up with pride about their knowledge. Among the Greeks, there was something called wisdom, Sophia, that was really important to the Greeks to be intellectually savvy. And Paul will criticize them, as, as you see as we work through this letter, Paul will criticize the Christians there because he understands that the, the brand of wisdom that these Corinthians are following owes more of its authorship to the world and to the world's wisdom and not to God's wisdom. And he will point out that there is a grand difference between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. And I think that, that we in the church need to hear that message today. Because like the Corinthians, we've gotten kind of cocksure of ourselves with all of our intellectual prowess. And we need to understand that we may have a lot of smarts and savvy when it comes to the things of the world. But unfortunately, as you look at the church today and the temperature and the barometer of the church, we're not all that spiritually savvy. And Paul's going to criticize the church about that. The third thing that characterized the Corinthian church was an unbalanced spirituality. This church had it all. They'd been favored with powerful demonstrations of God's movement in their midst. Uh, they were blessed with people who, who were gifted and talented. They had talent and gifts coming out the kazoos in this church. But they'd, they'd taken such an unhealthy interest in gifts that they had downplayed the importance of uh, things that had more eternal value like faith and love and humility. And you will remember that passage that Paul writes that we most often hear read at wedding services, that if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am no better than a clashing cymbal or a tinkling, uh, tinkling cymbal or clashing gong. If I have not love. And so... Uh, what Paul is pointing out is that, that every time they meet, they want to have these, the, the, the Spirit of God moving. But love is not characterizing their relationships so much so that he corrects them about some of their worship patterns. And he says, when you come together to celebrate the Lord's table, it is a ghastly sight because you're rushing ahead and, and some people are eating and some are not and some people have a feast and others don't have anything and you've made a mess, a royal mess of this. And so he writes to correct the church about some of their worship to get them straightened out. Now, as we study over this book over the coming weeks, we're going to find Paul dealing with lots of interesting questions. You're going to find them dealing with the questions of spiritual gifts, and we'll look at that. We're going to be looking at some of the, the, uh, the spiritual gifts, the more spectacular gifts, the sign gifts, uh, the gift of tongues. I've never preached a message on the gift of tongues in the 19 plus years that I've been here. I will during this series of messages. Uh, Paul will deal with uh, some burning questions that I know you're all dying to, to, to hear Paul speak to and, and me preach about, like,
Can you ever eat food that's sacrificed to idols? You've probably been staying awake at night thinking about that question. Or another question, is it all right for an uncircumcised believer to be circumcised to follow Jesus? Here's one question that Paul deals with that ought to be real interesting in our study. What did Paul really mean when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that women should remain silent in the churches? Pastor Ben will do a glorious job in that. I'll be away that week. I know you didn't know that, Ben, but now you do. I thought it was safer to break it to you in public. He's going to deal with uh, questions like, should a, a follower of Jesus ever sue another follower of Jesus in the court? Is it right for one believer to take another believer to court and sue them in the courts of justice? He's going to deal with questions like, why do sexual sins have such serious ramifications in our life? Questions like, why is it better for some to remain single than to marry? Questions like, when is it okay to divorce? When is it okay to remarry? What do you do if you're married to a non-believer? If you're a believer and you're married to a non-believer, what do you do? Those are some of the critical questions, intriguing questions, that Paul is going to address in writing to these followers of Jesus in Corinth, but to us as well in the 21st century. And Paul admits himself that this is a pretty harsh letter. In fact, in his second letter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8, he says, you know, I, I'm afraid that my first letter to you it was not fun to write, and it must have been no fun to have read to you, but I had to do it. I'm sorry if it hurt you, but I had to address those issues. And so he admits that it was a rather stern and difficult letter. But what else could he have done? The situation in Corinth was so deplorable that it would have been uh, really, it would have been a misuse of his leadership had he not addressed those spiritually dangerous situations that existed in the church there. And so I think this is going to be a particularly interesting study for us as we look at Paul's addressing these issues to the first century and how do these issues relate to us today in the 21st century. And I think we're going to find ourselves saying, boy, not much has changed in 20 centuries. Not much has changed. Now, in the few moments that we have left, let me just begin with the first opening verses of, of uh, chapter 1. And uh, Paul begins in verse 1, as he does in each of his letters, by identifying himself. If you're wanting to uh, take up the discipline of memorizing Scripture, Pauline epistles would be a good place to start. And you can memorize the beginning of each of the epistles because they all begin the same way. Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Who in the world is Sosthenes? Well, we learn a little bit about Sosthenes in Acts chapter 18 when Paul was in Corinth just starting the church there. There is also a reference to Sosthenes. We read that at that point Sosthenes was the leader. He was the 
lead pastor of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth. Six years earlier, when Paul had been there, Sosthenes had been a Jew. But God, in his grace and calling and election, called out to Sosthenes and had his eyes opened. And somewhere along the way, we don't know the details of his conversion to Christianity, but somewhere along the way, Sosthenes' heart was opened and he found a a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and and gave up his old Jewish ways and being the leader of the synagogue and, and, and became a Christ follower. And somewhere along the way, again, we don't know the details, he formed a ministry partnership with the Apostle Paul and here he is, Sosthenes at the side of the Apostle Paul in writing this letter to the Corinthians. And Paul continues, Paul, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul has begun with some very warm words of commendation here. And it's not just to kind of butter them up to prepare them for the stern language that is about to follow in a few verses. But he's actually stating truth to them. He's, he's trying to remind them of who they are in Christ Jesus. And he does that by saying to them uh, this statement of fact to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. In effect, what Paul is doing here is declaring that the Corinthian Christ followers are saints. They are saints. Hagias, holy people. They are saints. Which, as we will see, is quite a declaration. Calling them saints when you begin to see how messy their spiritual lives are. How far they have to go spiritually. But Paul declares that they are saints. They didn't have to go through some process in the Vatican to be declared that. Uh, They didn't have to prove their sainthood by having a certain number of miracles witnessed by others to declare that they were a saint. What was the basis of their sainthood? Their sainthood, Paul says, is based in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He declares that they are saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus. That is set apart for God's holy use. They are already made holy. And then he begins to proceed immediately in verses 4 to 9 to talk to them about the benefits of being a saint. But the beginning of his approach to them is to tell them, to remind them, you are saints. Hagias, holy one, separated one. Now what's so amazing about this is the fact that that 1 Corinthians from really the first chapter in verse 10 right almost up to the finish in in chapter 16, deals with wrong doctrine and bad behavior. And yet he calls them saints. You're holy people. I mean, if you could imagine a messed up church, it was Corinth. They did everything evil conceivably that a church could do. And yet he begins by addressing them as saints. 
How could that be? What we need to remember is the difference between a Christian's position before God and a Christian's practice. Between your standing before God and your actual behavior. I am a Christ follower. God, in His mercy and His grace, called me to Himself. And He saved me by His grace. And when He saved me by His grace, had nothing to do with me. All God's doing. When He saved me by His grace, He declared, legally declared, that I was not only not guilty, that's only part of it, He declared that I was righteousness. In fact, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed, the theologians say, has been placed upon, reckoned to my account. So now that because I am in Christ, and that's one of Paul's favorite ways of of talking about Christ's followers, that you are in Christ. That now that I am in Christ, positionally, Before God, I am a saint. I am a holy one. Even though my behavior and my actions and my words and all the other stuff has a lot of adjusting that has to be done to it, in the eyes of a holy God, I am holy. Because of me? Absolutely not. But because of Christ, the Holy One, whose righteousness has been imputed to me, I am hagias. I am holy. I am saint. So you can start calling me St. Rick. And I'll call you St. Bill and St. Linda and St. Don and St. Amy. Because if you have repented of your sins and if God has opened, sovereignly opened up your heart and called you to be among His elect people, the people of God, you are my friend. Remember your identity. You are a saint. We don't need Rome to declare that. God has already declared it in His Word that you are a holy person. My standing before God is defined as holiness. My behavior may still be defined as unholiness. And I have some work to do and God has some work to do to keep working on me. But when God looks at me, All he sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you don't understand that distinction, you'll never be able to interpret the New Testament because you get it all confused. The Corinthians were holy, holy before God because they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, not holy in the way they lived, as we shall see in the continuation of this study. They had not yet made their life match their position. Their position, positionally, they were in Christ. They were holy. But their life, God in His Spirit had some sanctifying work to do in them to make their life match up to their position. And that process is one that continues in each one of us. That even though we are declared righteous and positionally we are sanctified and saints and holy people... God is working on us and shaping us and molding us and refining us and putting some of us through the the refiner's fire to make us purer than silver or gold. Positionally before God, we are 
in the absolute righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ. So that when you trust in Jesus Christ, you are immediately, you don't have to wait, you are immediately set apart by God from the rest of the human race to become a special possession of God, a royal priesthood. And you enter into a special union with Jesus Christ. And this is where I think a lot of us believers miss the boat. As a result of being positionally a saint, a holy one, in special union with Christ, I think a lot of us fail to to remember that we take part in, we share in all the spiritual blessings of Jesus Christ. That because Jesus rose from the dead we also partake in the resurrection. Jesus said in John, you believe in me, uh, I am life, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. But those who believe in me have life. Because he has eternal life, we also have eternal life. Because he is the Son of God, you and I, positionally, we are adopted, we are grafted in, we are adopted into God's eternal family. Because Jesus is an heir of God, we are made co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Because we are declared, because He is righteous, you and I are declared to be righteous. In the mind of God, listen to me, saint, in the mind of God, you were crucified and buried and resurrected and are presently seated. Presently. You don't have to wait. But presently, in the mind of God, you are seated at the right hand of the Father, right along with Jesus Christ, who is exalted on the high, on high, the one we sang about this morning, the Lamb upon His throne. You are seated right with the Father, in, uh, with the Son, at the right hand of the Father, in the mind of God. And all the communicable attributes uh, of Jesus are yours. We live so far beneath our privileges. We've forgotten who we are and what our true identity in Christ is. Most of you know that my father died when I was a young boy. I have very few memories of my father. But one thing I remember about my dad was the way that he punished me and my brother. He was not real stern. I I do remember several paddlings from him, one in particular that I think I've shared before, but uh, more often my father would kill me with his words. And one day I had done something particularly bad, just one day. (laughs) And he took me aside to discipline me. And he said to me, he sat me down and looked into my eyes and he said, Son, I want you to know that I am deeply disappointed in you. You have misbehaved, and I am sad and disappointed. Son, I want you to remember that you are a crocker. Son, start acting like one. I want to say to you, church, today, 
You are a saint. Positionally before God, you are righteous and holy. All the blessings that attended to the Son of God, Jesus, are yours today. Start acting like it. Stop driveling around. Stop, stop, stop in your slowness of obedience and your slowness of heart. And instead, remember what your true identity is. You are a son or daughter of the King. You are a co-heir with Jesus. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. You are forgiven. You are adopted into the family. You have eternal life someday. You, you, will, res- you will resurrect from that grave wherever they bury you. And you will enjoy the pleasures of heaven forevermore. This is who you are. Yes, is there a lot that, that needs to be brought into alignment in your life? A lot that needs to be fashioned into the likeness of Jesus? Absolutely. For every one of us, it is true. But if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been set apart from the rest of the human race to become a special possession of God, and you are called to be saints. In fact, if you've trusted in Christ, you are a saint. And I think there's a very practical lesson for us to learn here. It is simply this. My identity in Christ, your identity in Christ, is no longer, because of this truth, is no longer rooted in my performance. Why is this so important? Because my performance will always fall short of what it should be. I am a sinner And I am going to go on being a sinner as long as I'm in this life. My performance as a Christian will always fall short of what it ought to be. What will this do to my self-image and my sense of security? If my focus is on my self-performance, then it will drive me to frustration. It will destroy my self-image. And I will end up doing one of two things. I might give up. Or I might try to fake it. And it feels to me today that the church is filled with a lot of people who are faking it. And have taken on a pseudo-spirituality. And have become a bunch of hypocrites. We wear our mask. But we're not genuinely living out the Christ life. And what you will discover, what we will discover as we plow through this epistle to the Corinthians is genuine, true spirituality to the core. It's real life. It's going to be messy. It's not always clean. There aren't always neat answers to it. But it's real life. And at the core of it all, you will find the Lord Jesus and the cross of Christ. And these promises that Paul reiterated to the Corinthian Christians are promises that come to us today in these verses, these final verses of this opening greeting. Paul says, For in him that is in Christ you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift 
as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He, Jesus, listen to this promise, He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the God who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What's Paul's last reminder to them? This God is faithful. He will do exactly what He says He will do. I look forward to the weeks ahead of plowing through these scriptures with you and hearing the message that the Spirit wants to speak to the church today and trust that we will walk in obedience before our faithful God. Would you stand together and let's pray.